1: If you're a first-time wrong-thinker or a seasoned veteran, you'll know this is the place to come to get some uh, mostly politics-free commentary, a little uh, snapshot of what's going on in the world today, as well as a reminder that uh, not everything in this world is political. There's a lot of human... uh, There's a lot of human existence that actually exists outside the political sphere. In fact, it's the best parts of human existence that uh, take place outside of politics. Anyway, I'm glad you could join me today. Before I jump into today's show, I'm going to do something a little bit self-serving. and I'm going to tell you that I'm really excited about uh, there's a new... Substack page that I am launching. Now I, I have a current Substack page called Hide in Plain Sight. H Y D E, Hide in Plain Sight. This is the little daily two-minute feature that I do. I, I send it out to radio stations, and you know they they play it, and it's uh, just principles, practices, purposes, things that that give greater meaning to life, but are also very easy to overlook. Well, because we're busy and we're distracted, and sometimes we're mad, and we, you know, don't want to don't want to pay attention to those those little details that make life worth living. This is a slightly different take. I'm going to introduce you to a project that I'm working on with uh, my dear friend, who is uh, who happens to be married to my cousin. Um, his name is Russ, and Russ and I are getting ready to to kick off a page called the Sovereign Biped. That was Russ's call, by the way. That's a great name. But it's all about how to reclaim your autonomy. Okay, This is not about gold fringe on the flag. It's not about telling a policeman at the side of the road, I do not recognize your jurisdiction. It's it's not about having joined her. It's eight areas of your life where if you choose to take responsibility, and it has to be your choice, you can live with purpose. Not just with purpose, but with your purpose. You're not waiting for permission. You're not waiting for someone to give you the okay. You're not waiting for someone in authority to grant you whatever's necessary to advance. You freely choose to do it. And I hope you'll take a look at it. Again, you can go to hideinplainsight.substack.com. And you'll notice there's a little link up there at the top of the page that says uh, the sovereign biped. It's going to launch tomorrow. The first article is going to be published, and then we will be publishing consistently two to three articles a week that, again, just are, are there for the sake of helping people find their freedom by choosing to be free, by choosing to own themselves, and to recognize that the only ownership that, that any of us has, uh, or the only ownership that anybody is real ownership that we should concede to anybody other than ourselves, is basically our relationship with God. The state, nope. They do not have that claim on you. I know, that kind of flies in the face of a lot of political science today. But it's also the basis on which our representative constitutional republic was founded. You have natural rights that predate and precede government. Government is enacted or called into existence for the purpose of protecting, securing, guaranteeing those rights. So, hopefully it doesn't get too deep too fast, but I'm excited. This is this is a slightly different direction than I've gone in a while, but I am just I'm thrilled for a chance to continue to produce content and hopefully speak truth that can help people come to a better place in their life where they are actually making their own decisions, thinking for themselves, and, of course, providing an example and inspiration to the people around them that it can be done. All right, so self-serving sequence over. Let's talk about a couple quick things here. In fact, I want to share with you something that uh, that came across... Uh, my feed earlier, and I'm still just a, a little bit uh, blown away by this just because it was such a touching story. And, and I'm, I'm going to get into some territory here that I know some people might think, well, Brian, really, do you have to go there? Because this not everybody believes in God, and, and my goal here is not to force you to believe in God. It's to encourage you to, to be more aware of the people around you. And this starts with this incredible pastor who was paying attention to to a prompting that he got to to reach out to a young man in his congregation. And I have to say it's it's one of the more touching stories that that I've seen in a while. I don't know that uh, I would I would necessarily be as brave as this guy was, but listen to what he says and tell me that this isn't a person who's trying to do some good in the world.
2: That's crazy. Let me tell you about this one time where I almost didn't listen to what God was telling me to do. For those that may not know me, my name is Adam Salinas. I was an evangelist for over 10 years and I'm currently a senior pastor here at my local church. Years ago when I was ministering in Tijuana, Mexico, I was there for a youth event, and all of a sudden the power of God starts moving, and you know God would usually give me words of knowledge, word of wisdom, you know revelation towards individuals and There was this one young man in the middle of the altar that you know he's kind of he's kind of rock solid you know, not really into the worship, or at least it didn't seem like it, and he's kind of just standing there, and all of a sudden i I feel that God is wanting me to go and Pray for this person, but my mind is blank. Like there's nothing that I feel like saying. There's I'm not really seeing anything, you know, to him or, or or anything like that. And I'm like, you know what? No. And and I I go and I begin to pray for other people, and it keeps bugging me, and it keeps bugging me. And I'm like, but God, if you really wanted me to go and say something to him you would have already impressed in my heart or in my mind what to say. And I'm not getting anything. So I ignore it and I keep going. And all of a sudden, uh, one of these pastors comes up to me and he's like, Brother Salinas, God is telling me to tell you that you need to pray for that young man. And I said, okay, amen. And, And when I looked to who he was pointing at, he was pointing at the young man that I was hesitating to go pray for. And I'm still stubborn. I'm like, nah, you know, like... I mean, who is he? I'm the evangelist, you know, that kind of dumb mentality. And all of a sudden I begin to pray and I ask God, I said, you know what, God, if this is really you, I'm gonna ask you for a sign. And keep in mind, this young man is, you know, head down, no expression, his hands are down, nothing. He's just a body in the altar. So I asked God, I said, you know what, God, if this is really you, I don't have anything to tell him, but if you want me to go over there and pray for him, I'm asking you for a sign. When I look over there where he's at, I want him to lift up his left hand. I know it sounds so dumb and so weird to you, but this is just the relationship that I have with God, and this is how honest and kind of um, I don't know. This is just the way I am. So I asked him. I said, "If, "If this is your will, let him lift up his his left hand, and that'll be my sign." All of a sudden, I continue to pray and I look over to him. And as soon as I look at him, this young man lifts up his left hand. And I'm like, okay. I go over there, I walk to him. And all of a sudden, I'm standing right in front of him. And I I say, I ask him, can I pray for you? And he opens his eyes and he's like, sure, you know. And uh, I have nothing to say. And I feel this impulse to just hug him. To just hug him. And I'm like, oh man, what if he rejects it? What if he doesn't want to? I, I don't know him. He doesn't know me. And I feel the tug. Hug him. So I look at him and now he's staring back at me. And I kind of, you know, I kind of give the gesture, can I hug you? This young man embraces me like I've never been embraced before. And as soon as his head touches my shoulder, he is crying and crying and crying. And we're there for a solid 10 minutes and I'm I'm now crying with him. I end up finding out afterwards that this young man was going to commit suicide that weekend and he was asking God for someone not to give him any words of encouragement, not to speak anything over his life, to just be embraced. And that is how he would know that God loved him. Don't you ever hesitate to do what God is telling you to do, even if what he's telling you to do, he's not asking you to speak anything. He's just asking you to do.
1: I just am am blown away by that. And look, I'm not, for for those of you who aren't believers in God, this is not my call. You better be in Sunday school next week. But, you know, doesn't this raise your awareness of, of what the people around you are going through? And for those who do believe have you ever had someone's name whispered in your ear? Suddenly they pop into your head and you're like, oh, maybe there's a reason for that. This is all I'm suggesting. And I'm sorry, if, if, if I've gone off into the metaphysical here and now you're like, oh, he's really out there in the weeds today. I'm suggesting maybe the best thing we can do is always kind of have an ear that's that's open and listening for those those impressions or promptings that uh, that someone around us needs some reassurance or some encouragement, and it, it may be somebody we know. It may be a total stranger. I love stories like this because they, they affirm to me that, uh, that first of all, I, I believe God does exist, and I believe that he hears and answers prayers. I also believe that most often those prayers are answered through somebody else, somebody who's listening and who doesn't question it or rationalize it away, but basically says, I want to help you. How can I help Anyway, you'll find a link to that uh, video if you want to share it with friends. It touched my heart. That's why I'm sharing it with you. We'll be back right after these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, we are back. You can check out my show notes, by the way, at my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes. If you're looking for today's notes, they are, wow, November 30th, 2023. Seriously, I blinked and November was gone. So, you know, if you want to find yourself in trouble these days, if you want to find yourself in trouble, all you have to do is point out the obvious or refuse to participate in the suspension of reality, and uh, that uh, that's going to get you in trouble. Stephen Whitney has, has a great article about how men and women are not identical, and that's a good thing. And that's the first thing he says is, you know, pointing out the obvious is bound to get you in trouble these days, no matter how well-intentioned you might be. He says, good faith debate across the aisle seems harder to come by. This stifling atmosphere has contributed to a sense of confusion with regard to how Americans, particularly in younger generations, view God's creation. And few issues are as plagued by confusion more than the concept of sex. People once understood that men and women are not the same. To propose that the sexes are identical would have resulted in laughter just a few generations back. Only the most committed feminists, then a rare breed, might have tried to argue otherwise. He says the truth is that innate differences exist between men and women, and there's nothing wrong with pointing that out. Study after study has revealed that on average, women display more empathy than men. Women are also typically more interested in people, where men show more of an interest in things. Now this people-things difference is even noticeable in infants, disproving the claim that it's merely the result of cultural conditioning. Stephen Whitney says great physical differences exist between the sexes as well, which is clear in the gap in athletic performance between men and women where men consistently outperform women. Now, this isn't to say that women cannot be great athletes, but it does explain why an under-15 boys soccer team beat the U.S. women's national team in a scrimmage. Now, to some, the claims above will prove engaging, or enraging, rather. (laughs) To the rest of us, though, The research provided only reaffirms what we already know. Our grandparents certainly didn't need to read a bunch of studies to understand that men and women are different. Yet in today's world, where a wealth of scientific literature on sexual differences exists, the subject is more contentious. So, with that said, acknowledging the sexual differences does not mean that one sex is of greater moral worth than the other. As Genesis 1.27 makes clear, God created man, meaning mankind or humans male and female, in his own image. In fact, he quotes the verse, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And the differences between men and women are thus divinely ordained. So to deny them is to deny God's order. Or if he prefer, the natural order. Not only should these differences be accepted, Stephen Whitney says they should be embraced. After all, society depends on it. The traditional family with a female homemaker and a male breadwinner has been a staple of American life for good reason. Tragically, such an arrangement is harder to establish these days, largely for economic reasons, but that doesn't mean we should shy away from holding it up as the ideal. Discussing the nature of men and women is further complicated by the rise of gender ideology, which teaches that sex and gender are different things. In other words, your biology has nothing to do with whether or not you are a man or a woman, or so they would have us believe. Now, how can we even have an honest discussion about the sexes when we can't even agree on what they are? And what's worse, according to some physicians who buy into gender ideology, there are more than 72 genders. With this ungodly propaganda promulgated in schools and media, it's no wonder that 57% of Generation Z feels comfortable referring to others by gender-neutral pronouns. Those who believe that men and women have no innate differences or that these human categories have no basis in biology are confused. Most have been led astray. Now, listen, he says we should not hate them, of course, but should instead aspire to engage with them in good faith but we cannot indulge their delusions. After all, a world in which men and women are the same would be painfully dreary. Now, fortunately, that's not our world, and we shouldn't feel compelled to pretend that it is. This one hit me pretty hard, just because I saw a couple of articles yesterday. Um, In particular, there was a drag queen story hour or some kind of a drag queen reading time event taking place in Pocatello, Idaho, earlier this year and it was at the public library and parents who were aware of it were like, I don't, you know, some parents, I guess were okay with it. They were, they were going to take their little kids, little kids to it. But there were other parents who were like, I don't really like the idea of this happening, especially in our public library. But they, they said, you know, how can we do this? How can we register a protest without, you know, going out there and, you know, basically conducting ourselves like a bunch of thugs, a la, you know, AKA, uh, you know, Black Lives Matters or Antifa. And so what they did was a number of concerned parents and neighbors and grandparents showed up early, filled every seat in the venue, and when the parents with the little kids and the drag queen showed up, well, they had an audience of adults sitting there instead of children to perform for. And that, of course, you know, brought a lot of outrage, the sympathetic press, look at these people, look at the backlash and the outrage, oh, you know, As as if there is no appropriate place to draw a boundary when it comes to kids. Now look, these folks weren't going out of their way. We gotta persecute those who are different. We gotta persecute the gays, we gotta, you know, go after everybody in the LGBTQ plus blah 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 spectrum. No. They were simply standing up for appropriate boundaries for what's presented to kids. So I guess it's not a big surprise. The city of Pocatello, Idaho, has awarded... They, they have some kind of a diversity community that uh, apparently has awarded this uh, Educators of the Year kind of award or Community Activists of the Year award to this Drag Queen Story Hour. I mean, look, they're, they're free to do so, but it's just so interesting the way that narrative is framed. Why? They're just providing educational space for children. Okay. I can accept that, but let's let's clarify. What exactly are they educating these kids about? Oh, they're educating them about inclusivity and diversity and the kind of people that they could hang out with or, or even become. Hmm. So why don't you do this for adults? I mean, if this is really just an outlet for performance artists and this is a way of them expressing their art and expressing themselves, you would think that they would they would welcome any audience. I mean, I don't know of very many artists that are like, well, you know, I painted this painting, but it's only for Dutch people between the ages of 45 and 70. No. But they don't want the adults. They want the kids. And I'm sorry if, it's, if it sounds kind of creepy to point that out. Boy, they sure seem interested in the kids. But when you consider this, and I'm sorry to, to have to say the obvious, same-sex relationships are incapable of producing new life on their own. Okay, that's not my ideological stance. That's a natural fact. If you do not have the male and female components of procreation, it's not going to happen. Period. Full stop. So, they cannot create new life. But they can certainly recruit new adherents to a particular lifestyle or a particular mindset. And I believe that's really what it's all about. But as always, it, it requires this suspension of, of reality or a willingness to disregard reality in order to accommodate what, what I think can rightly be called some pretty extreme views. Now, again, that's not you should go out there and hate people and yell at them and throw things at them. I'm not saying that at all. You should treat people the way you would want to be treated. But that does not mean you have to accommodate everything that they want to do. Well, I guess I better load up the grandkids or load up my kids and take them over and, you know, hear what this uh, man dressed in women's lingerie is wanting to say to them. Look, the, the danger here is that there is a victim mindset at work. And I'm talking victimhood that's worn like a crown. Look at me. I'm a victim. I am responsible for nothing in my life. But you, well, you're not a victim, so you have to do what I say. You should feel bad. The guilt that I'm throwing at you should cause you to basically defer to me in everything that I ask. And thus, it's it's a mechanism of control. By the way, you don't have to see this on you know the community level. It happens at the family level too. And the transgender thing is, is a huge example of this. If you don't participate in my reality, then I cease to exist. In other words, you have to play along with my delusions. You can say no nicely. But you got to be willing to say no.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, I'm really sorry if, if I've had a uh, unusually religious tone to today's show. Not from the fact that, you know, I think it's a bad thing or that I think it's, you know, somehow this is, this is a terrible thing. It's just I understand that's a very personal area for some people. And so when when a topic is broached that has any kind of uh, religious significance, it can be uncomfortable for folks who maybe don't hold a particular belief. So I'm not trying to convince anybody, hey, you're bad if you don't believe. At the same time, I, I do encourage people to to. Hold to their beliefs and strengthen those beliefs, and and as much as you can, be an example of what you believe. In other words, don't just go around talking about it, but live like someone who really, you know, has something of substance on which they're standing. Got a great article here that uh, just seemed appropriate for today, especially considering that one of the big conflicts of our time right now is between the people who feel the need that every human interaction has to be coordinated, preferably by, you know, someone in authority, and those who don't feel like we need to be, you know, overseen in every human interaction. Barry Brownstein talks about the miracles of human cooperation and how they're hidden in plain sight. In fact, he points out if you believe that someone must be in charge of coordinating human action, you're never going to notice all the marvels around you. He says, uh, in response to a recent essay at uh, the American Institute for Economic Research, Adriana Postovaru from Romania shared this photo... And testimony. This couple of uh, old ladies in a nearly empty grocery store. She says, Imagine going to the grocery store and finding the shelves empty. You then head to the butcher and all you see are bones, various kinds of meatless bones. Later you visit the bookstore only to find books adorned with the faces of dictators on their covers. Or perhaps even more unsettling, as the Cultural Revolution unfurled, only one person and one type of publications become acceptable Mao and his writings. Now, these aren't scenes from a dystopian book or movie. Rather, they're memories from yesterday from her impoverished childhood. And she says, I hope the West will wake up and needs to wake up. Liberty and human cooperation are miracles worth fighting for. By the way, she says, toilet paper was a luxury that we didn't often have. Barry Brownstein says, with that that testimony in mind, he says, As you read my essay, please reflect on what enables the daily miracle of abundance you receive. Barry says he and his wife were shopping at Trader Joe's just before closing time. The docks to the storage level were open. The space inside was stacked from floor to ceiling. Workers were unloading trucks and adding to the brightly lit cornucopia. What happens at night is invisible to the thousands of customers passing through the store daily. Barry says my wife remarked that most people have no knowledge of the market processes that their lives depend upon. Until abundance is no longer there, they will take it for granted. Now, the boxes we saw being unloaded came from many suppliers, each doing its best to retain shelf space at Trader Joe's by delivering items at price and quality points that customers valued. Not only is Trader Joe's fully stocked, it is stocked with products that satisfy customer needs. Recently, Max Borders pointed, to us, uh, pointed us to a passage by journalist Scott Shane in his book, Dismantling Utopia, How Information Ended the Soviet Union. Now, Shane was curious why some of the longest lines in Moscow were for shoes. Naturally, he assumed that the inefficient Soviet economy did not produce enough shoes. But to his surprise, Shane found that the Soviet Union was the largest producer of shoes in the world, producing 800 million pairs of shoes a year, which was enough for more than three pairs of shoes per year for every Soviet man, woman, and child. But the problem was the shortage was of shoes people wanted to buy. Shane wrote, the comfort, the fit, the design, and the seismics of Soviet shoes were so out of sync with what people needed and wanted that they were willing to stand in line for hours to buy the occasional pair, usually imported, that they liked. Soviet planners had selected a consensus shoe, and it was a shoe that met few needs. Walking into a Soviet shoe store was like walking into a grocery store and finding the fruit section had only figs and the vegetable section only turnips. Now, if you glance at the items in the customer carts at Trader Joe's, there is no such thing as a consensus cart. Your tastes and needs vary greatly from other shoppers. If Soviet-era shoe store had a Trader Joe's-trained cashier who asked, Did you find everything today? The customer's answer would have always been, No. Planners and managers never considered information about what the customers valued, so it did not influence their stocking decisions. Here's how Shane explains it. At the root of the dysfunction was the state's control of information. Prices are information. The information producers need it in order to know what and how much to produce. In a market for a product as varied in material and design as footwear, shifting prices are like sensors taped to the skin of a patient in a medical experiment. They provide a constant flow of information about consumer needs and preferences. End quote. So, science fiction writer John Windham is best known for his book The Day of the Triffids. Now, Barry Brownstein says the day that he and his wife shopped at Trader Joe's, he says, I had just finished reading Wyndham's allegorical dystopian novel The Chrysalids. In The Chrysalids, Wyndham presents a view of humanity in a future century after a nuclear war has made vast parts of the Earth uninhabitable and has made human and animal mutations common. Amid the terrible destruction and primitiveness, a utopia emerged in one part of the Earth inhabited by people who can think together telepathically. Wyndham has one of the new people in that utopia describe human existence prior to the nuclear war. That would be us. Here's how he describes us. They were only ingenious half-humans, little better than savages, all living shut off from one another with only clumsy words to link them. Often they were shut off, still more, by different languages and different beliefs. Emotions they could sometimes share, but they could not think collectively. Now, Barry Brownstein says, Wyndham's new people believed that because of the absence of telepathy, humans in our time had no means of cooperation. And as the population grew, the problem of cooperation grew. When their conditions were primitive, they would get along all right, as the animals can. But the more complex they made their world, the less capable they were of dealing with it. They had no means of consensus. They learned to cooperate constructively in small units, but only destructively in large units. They aspired greedily, and they refused to face the responsibilities they had created. There was, you see, no real communication, no understanding between them. Again, that's an excerpt from Wyndham's book, The Chrysalids. Now, Wyndham lived in England. He wrote that book in 1955. He never saw today's abundance. But the miracles of human cooperation were all around him. Compared to just a century before, he already was living in a utopia. There were more people and at the same time, more fruits of cooperation. In England, ten years before Wyndham wrote his novel, F.A. Hayek in the Use of Knowledge in Society, famously explained, explained rather that the price system is a mechanism for communicating information. So the cooperation that Wyndham was blind to didn't come from consensus building and willful coordination via telepathy. It came from decentralized decision-making. Now, consensus is not necessary to achieve coordination. Wyndham's artistic vision was at odds with reality, yet his misguided intuition is commonplace. As Israel Kirzner observed, quote, "...to the layman untrained in economics, the market economy presents a bewildering face. It consists of numerous individuals, each intent on his own goals, giving no concern to the overall social implications of his pursuits." No central coordinating agency controls or even monitors the innumerable independent production and exchange decisions made by these countless individuals. It's no wonder that the market economy seems to be nothing but a jungle of clashing, discordant, individual activities. End quote. Now, telepathic humans, Barry writes, cannot concentrate knowledge and arrive at a consensus any more than a central planner can. The knowledge of which we must make use, as Hayek explained, consists of dispersed bits of incomplete and frequently contradictory knowledge. In his telepathic utopia, Wyndham failed to realize the obvious. Minds can be joined, but reaching a consensus is unnecessary. Via decentralized decision-making, you may like turnips, I may prefer kale, but we can both have our needs met without conflict. Wyndham and his readers may think telepathy is a marvel, but it's nothing compared to the price system as a means of communication and cooperation. Hayek, by the way, uses the word marvel, marvel to shock the reader out of the complacency which the price mechanism with which the price mechanism rather is taken for granted. Hayek added, "I am convinced that if it, meaning the price system, were the result of deliberate human design, and if people guided by the price changes understood, that their decisions have significance far beyond their immediate aim, this mechanism would have been acclaimed as one of the greatest triumphs of the human mind. So to be fair to Wyndham, Barry says, humanity seems capable of destroying itself. The odds of destruction go up when people don't communicate and cooperate. The conflicts we observe coincide with disruptions in the decentralized decision-making of free markets. But his point is, the problem has already been solved. Consensus via telepathy is a maladaptive solution. Humans already cooperate and communicate in miraculous ways, through the mechanism of the price system. If you believe someone must be in charge of coordinating human action, you will never notice all the marvels around you. So be warned, when a critical mass of people believe consensus building and willful coordination is necessary, they will soon clamor for conscious direction. And that is music to the ears of those who would take away our freedom. That's some pretty powerful insights there. Check it out. There's a link in my show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Again, these are the show notes for November 30th, 2023.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the final segment of today's show. I love that I get to share some really great resources for people who are determined to do their own thinking and to to basically stand on their own two feet. And that's why I would encourage you to please subscribe to my show notes so that you can connect up with these fellow wrong thinkers and those who are looking at things through something other than the mass media filter, which, uh, of course, always includes only those things that are on that 3x5 index card of approved opinion or acceptable opinion. Thank you, Thomas Woods, for introducing me to that concept. I want to introduce you to a website that I'm I'm almost positive you've never heard of. And it's uh, one that was created by uh, one of my favorite mentors, Paul Rosenberg. The website is called Vera Verba, V-E-R-A-V-E-R-B-A, Vera Verba. And yes, I've got a link in my show notes today if you want to check this out for yourself. The subtitle of this website is We Have It In Our Power To Begin The World Over Again. And what you will find here are a number of different posts very short i'll give you a couple of examples of them but clear examples of people just being extraordinary human beings so here we go this is here's here's the one that it landed on i don't know if there's there's like a random thing that that pulls up um it's it's an interesting website it's basically like playing russian roulette but but you're playing it with with something that rewards you with something other than bullets it's it's like uh, this this is goodness and you see a picture of a a professor in a school reaching up and writing out a, a math equation on a wall. I was thinking it was a chalkboard, but nope, that's, that's a wall. And the story here is that this math professor and his students were locked out of their classrooms because of some kind of protest. <laughs> on a college campus? Really? I'm sorry, being facetious here. On top of that, it was raining. Nonetheless, the professor took his class behind the building and he taught them writing with chalk on the wall, ignoring the rain. Now, people who believe in what they're doing, people who believe they are drawing some good thing out of themselves, step over and around impediments. They do the hard things, no matter that they're hard, and sometimes they do them even because they are hard. What a classic example of being dedicated enough and believing enough in what you're doing, you'd be willing to stand in the rain and write out the math lesson on a wall with chalk, even though you're locked out of your classroom and even though it's raining, And there are students, by the way, standing around watching him do this. He's not just doing it for himself. So, before going back to the mundane, Paul says, remember a time when you did something that was hard because you believed in it. Or imagine such an event. He says, go through it slowly and precisely, considering the process of choosing and the euphoria of doing. That's what you find on vera verba. I'll give you one more, just as an example. It's it's a photograph of a young black kid. Looks like he could be school age. He's got a backpack on, probably headed to school. Um, Stopping next to a sleeping homeless person on the sidewalk, and praying for that person. Paul says this photo is an obvious one. The young man is praying for a homeless person sleeping on the sidewalk. It was an act of compassion. Now, he points out, all sorts of complaints about praying have been made, including a Bible passage about loving not just in word, but in deed. But whether or not this act changed things for the homeless man, they did for the young man who was praying. Why? Because he was engaging his compassion. He was doing his very best to reach out and convey some sort of benevolence to a suffering human being. And Paul Rosenberg's point is, these are not vain actions. They do have effects. And so he says, consider, before returning to the mundane, that all sincere acts of compassion are to be welcomed. So please, please," he says, try to feel compassion yourself. Pick a target and spread your intentions. Actions may be more effective than intentions, but actions also begin with intentions. I hope that hits the chord for you that it does for me. It just, that made my heart glad. And I had found this website some time ago, probably a couple of years ago. But I just rediscovered it a few days ago. It popped up and I went, oh, dang. I I really like these examples. And and there there are just so many of them. So if you hear about something, you know, if if you've had enough atrocity porn to last you for the week, consider going to veraverba.com and get yourself a fix of what some human goodness looks like. And I love that Paul Rosenberg always ends with that call to action to stop and think about it. Before you go back to the, you know, grind, before you go back to life, think about all the things that are happening. You think about how this has happened in your life or how you could help make it happen in somebody else's life. I really like this. I think this is, I think he's on to something. And so I wanted to share that with you. All right, one final article, and this is, you know, whether you watch TV or not, there are some really interesting ideological tropes that have become entrenched in everything Hollywood creates. Donald Jeffries has a really great article on his substack contrasting those Hollywood tropes with real-life wisdom. Now, he says, I watch a lot of movies, I used to watch a lot of television, and I seem to notice things that most people don't. My tendency to critically question everything ensures that many people close to me, especially my my female loved ones, leave the room when I'm watching something. But he says, the males, however, appreciate my running commentary. By the way, I'm, I'm happy to find that uh, I'm not the only one in that, in that state. My poor wife. There comes a point where I'm like, okay, she's kind of pushing back now. I'm talking too much, and so I have to shut up. He says, at one point, I wanted to write a script for a prospective uh, uh, sitcom or film comedy, which incorporated all the common tropes that we see on screen. But he says, where would I send it? Hollywood doesn't take unsolicited screenplays or manuscripts. Half the restaurant servers in Tinseltown are peddling them. And if they can't get someone to read their work, except perhaps if they wait on the right big shot who finds them physically attractive enough to find to invite them to the casting couch, well, he says, I've never been in a position to wait on anyone willing to consider my work in return for sexual favors. so I probably wouldn't be their type anyway. And now I'm too old for any of them. So he says maybe those unseen screenplays from waiters and waitresses yearning to break into show business contain some valuable entertaining stuff. Now, some of them might be original thinkers who shake their heads at the same tropes and propaganda that I do. If they're pushing something fresh and original, then he says they're out of luck. Even if they say yes to all the bald-headed film moguls in the city, every script must spin a modern, woke leftist message. Black characters must be wildly overrepresented and must all be strong and positive. Females must be physically tough and ready to verbally abuse or physically overpower any white male character. Their great strength and confidence often wilts in the presence of non-white males for some reason. He says uh, leading ladies need to look angry all the time, especially in the presence of white males. Then non-white males enter the picture and their resting expression visibly softens, but White male characters can never be alpha. They are weak, submissive, usually the butt of jokes from female white females and non-whites of all genders. Mixed-race couples are always encouraged. And this is a trope I know you've seen. Characters will usually reside either in a New York apartment or an upscale home in the suburbs. You won't see any primary characters living in a lower-middle-class townhouse, for instance. If the film is about the hood, then, of course, the black characters will be mired in poverty, but glamorous poverty. And the plots have to be redundant of something that's been done countless times before. Jewel heists, hackneyed bullies in high school, all romantic comedies or rom-coms as they call them now, or a compelling concept which is then never developed. These films invariably are also never resolved. They just end and you wind up going, that's it? Well, he says, at least I do. But when they hint at something conspiratorial, it always winds up being the work of some secret private company run by some startlingly non-diverse group of evil white men, never the government. And of course, the evildoers are never diverse, like the multicultural heroes always are. He says, I notice tropes don't even make sense in any propagandistic fashion. Watch how often characters going back decades leave their car doors open when jumping out. Guess Hollywood vehicles have special batteries or something. Whenever something weird is afoot, or if the character is about to contract a deadly illness, they have a little blood leaking from one nostril. The old falling down when running from danger thing isn't as popular as it used to be, but characters still wait far too long to react to danger. They stare irrationally and then slowly start to back away instead of instantly moving as fast as they can. He says, I guess that's just for dramatic effect. Now, he goes on about a few other tropes. I'm going to let you describe it. It's a pretty pretty lengthy essay, but the bottom line is he says, I don't care for most tropes, not from Hollywood, and not those which have become thoughtlessly ingrained in our culture. In fact, he says, make your own tropes. You can have self-esteem without becoming unbearable. You can be strong and gentle at the same time. You don't have to be a bully or a victim. Politeness may sometimes be hypocritical, but it is the most acceptable kind. Be loyal to your family members who are trying to earn a living. Care for your aging parents like they cared for you. If you're a 100-pound female, don't try to fight a 200-pound man. You will only win on film. Be cutting edge, he says. Get married in a church. Ooh, that is edgy. (laughs) In your community, so people uh, don't have to pay for a destination. That's, uh, That's for the wedding, right? Get married in your community. Don't make them travel to Italy to attend your wedding. Oh, and when you get out of your car door, he suggests close the door behind you. I would also add for other movie characters, take a potty break once in a while. They must have bladders of steel.